Well, good morning, everyone. I feel like I need, I should gallop in on that somehow. <laughs> Maybe swing down from the roof. <clears throat> Pretty dramatic entrance. Uh, Labor Day going well for you so far? Great, good, I'm glad. I'm glad you're here. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles uh, with me to John chapter 3. Uh, hopefully if you have them, John chapter 3, New Testament. And as Josh mentioned, we are in this study called Collision in which we're looking at various people's encounters with Jesus, specifically those that are recorded by the Apostle John uh, in his biography on Jesus. And as unique as each of these encounters are, there's one thing consistently true of all of them, and that is those who had intentional or even unintentional interactions with Jesus, their lives were seriously impacted. They were changed. So this morning, I want to look at uh, what is arguably one of the most famous encounters that Jesus had in the city of Jerusalem one evening with an influential uh, religious leader. And uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story or certain aspects of of the story or certain things that are said in the story. So let me read it for us and then we'll talk a little bit about it, okay? Starting John chapter three, verse one. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they, they cannot enter a second time in their, their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. So tell me something. When you guys hear uh, the word Pharisee applied to someone, what image comes to mind? I mean, if my guess is if you're like me, you immediately think of a person who is uh, legalistic, arrogant, religiously self-righteous, hypocritical. Why? Because that's, that's our Western culture's sort of evolved definition of the word Pharisee. But I've come to realize that this, this rather disparaging use of the term is, is unfortunate in that it, it doesn't fairly represent the group of individuals who were known in first century Palestine as the Pharisees. The Hebrew term Pharisee literally means separated one, And it was the label given to a particular religious sect of ancient Judaism. And while it's true, Jesus and the Pharisees had their uh, disagreements and had some run-ins where they verbally attacked Jesus and he openly criticized them, the fact is they weren't all bad. They, They weren't all bad. But over time, we've created this sort of villainous narrative in which the Pharisees get a bum rap. You know, they're they're viewed as nothing more than a collective uh, bunch of mean-spirited evil Jesus haters. You know, Jesus was all good, they were all bad. 
Jesus was all righteous. They were completely wicked. Jesus walked down the street healing puppies. The Pharisees walked down the street kicking puppies and juggling kittens, you know. That's sort of, that's, that's how we've come to envision them. But it's not accurate. And uh, this guy, Nicodemus, disproves our misguided stereotypes. Because yes, he, he was a Pharisee. He was a leader of the Pharisees. Uh, he was a religious insider. And yet, he was also an, an, an incredibly good person. Why do I say that? I say it based on this interaction with Jesus. Because understand, uh, as a Pharisee in first century Israel, as well as a member of the Jewish ruling council, Nicodemus would have been a very well-educated biblical scholar. He'd been a religious and political leader, a guy who genuinely loved God and held himself to very high moral standards, a respected, influential member of the community, not to, uh, not to mention a successful and wealthy man. And he comes to Jesus, who was not uh, formally educated, had no credentials whatsoever, held no religious or political office, and was certainly not wealthy. Yet he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, which was a, a title of honor, esteem, respect. He says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. I don't know about you, but I hear that statement. I'm thinking, this statement indicates that, to me, on top of everything else that Nicodemus was, he was also polite, humble, respectful, an open-minded, uh, open-minded seeker of spiritual truth. I mean, he just, he really wants to have a conversation. And I know some people want to criticize him for approaching Jesus under the cover of darkness, uh, but um, I don't know, that makes sense to me for the guy. He'd never met Jesus before. He didn't personally know him. Uh, what if Jesus was a, indeed a phony, you know, just a lunatic out there making outrageous claims? Why risk his hard-earned reputation among his peers in the community uh, for someone he didn't really know. So it seems to me choosing to go to Je- uh, Jesus at night, using discretion with that, was both wise and rational for him. And Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't condemn him for it. All this to say that, that the information John gives us here presents Nicodemus, Nicodemus as quite a, uh, an impressive and commendable person. Really, an all-around, truly good, morally religious guy. And uh, there were probably more Pharisees like him because uh, notice he says, Rabbi, we, we know you're a teacher from God. And so he initiates this interaction with a polite, respectful statement of affirmation. And how does Jesus reply to him? Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. As far as we know, uh, Jesus offered no, no greeting or social pleasantries. It's not like he was being rude, uh, but his response was unexpected, unusual, and frankly a bit confusing. And it catches Nicodemus off guard, because basically he comes and says, hi, Rabbi, and, and all of a sudden they're thrust into a conversation about the kingdom of God and how to get in it, which offers me a clue uh, as to why Jesus said what he did. I mean, it was true, this Pharisee was a decent uh, moral human being, no doubt about it. However, Jesus looks at him and immediately sees this good man's deepest spiritual need. In short, Nicodemus's goodness wasn't good enough. And so Jesus essentially tells him, look, when it comes to the kingdom of God, nothing, you, nothing you've done counts. You have to start over. You don't need a better, more informed religion. You need a new spiritual life. You must be born again. 
The Greek term, the Greek adverb that's used here is the term anothen, which can be translated uh, again or above. And so, in my opinion, in order to reflect the, sort of the, the, the full nuance of the term, it makes sense to translate it, you must be born again from above. Born again from above, reflecting both the newness and the origin of this spiritual life that Jesus is talking about. It's not something that comes by way of human, human effort. It comes from above, i.e., comes from God. Now, we know Nicodemus was, a, was an intelligent, well-educated guy who I'm sure understood the use of metaphor. But I think he was so startled by what Jesus says to him that he initially just takes it very literally. And he asks, well, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they, they can't enter a second time in a mother's womb. That can't happen. And so Jesus states it a bit differently. He goes and he says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Nicodemus, you shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Now there's been a lot of um, debate over the centuries as to what exactly Jesus meant by being born of water and spirit and why he told Nicodemus that he shouldn't be surprised by this whole new birth idea. And it seems to me that the explanation for this lies in the fact that Nicodemus was a, a religious expert, right? He was a teacher of the law. And in the context of first century Judaism, Jewish culture, whenever, um, whenever a Gentile would convert to Judaism, they were required to do a number of things. But the, one of the last things they were required to do was immerse themselves in water, because water symbolized purification. They were to immerse themselves in water publicly in, in these public baths called mikvahs. And as they washed themselves in, in these baths, it was to symbolize the washing away, the cleansing uh, of their pagan, uh, their pagan sins and pagan impurities. And according to religious teachers at the time, once a Gentile did this, they would say they were like a newborn child, having turned from their pe previous people and priorities and lifestyle to now serving the God of Israel, i.e., they were a new person with a new life, a new family, and a new king. And if Nicodemus heard Jesus telling a Gentile this, that they needed to be born, born again, born of the water, born purified of the sins, etc., he would have known what Jesus was alluding to. Conversion, you know, a, a life transformation, which is why Jesus says, you shouldn't be surprised by this, Nicodemus, by what I'm telling you. But he, he was surprised. He was surprised because he wasn't a pagan Gentile. He was a good religious Jew, an accomplished Pharisee who taught the law. So he says, how can this be? I teach the law. I keep the rules and regulations. Why do I need cleansing? Why do I need purification? Why do I need a new birth? Why do I need a new life? Why do I need spiritual transformation? To which Jesus responds, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? You know, to, to be honest about it, there's so much behind everything Jesus says to Nicodemus. We don't have time um, to peel back all the historical, cultural, social, religious, theological, and symbolic layers. We just don't. He mentions new birth here. He, Jesus talks about God's spirit is like the wind. You know, you, you, can, you, can, you can't necessarily see it, but you can feel its effects and experience its effects. It blows wherever it pleases. It's powerful. It, it, it's, the spirit is what brings about this new life. All these things. There's so much here. Uh, 
We don't have time, so let me just give you my Reiki summary. What it comes down to is this. Jesus is trying to help this good religious Jewish person understand that their goodness was not enough to see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. Nicodemus needed a spiritual rebirth, a purification of sin, a total transformation. And consider the implication of that. If, if this truly good, moral, successful, had-it-all-together, devoutly religious, rule-keeping guy needed to be born again from above, what does that mean for the rest of us? What does that mean for me? Because I'm not that good. What it means is, we all need it. If he needs it, I need it. We all need it. All of us need to be born again from above. No matter how good and together your life is or how messed up it is, Jesus is saying that no one enters the kingdom of God by way of ethnicity, human goodness, moral effort, or religious works and ritual, but only through spiritual rebirth. How does this new birth come about? The answer is found within the birth metaphor. Because think about this. When you were born, what, uh, what did you do to contribute to the whole birthing process? Now, you may not remember, so let me, let me tell you. You did nothing, okay? You did absolutely nothing. Babies don't create themselves. They don't, they don't get born because they plan on it. They have nothing to do with it. The gift of life, the gift of life has to do with the parents. Same is true with our spiritual life. We contribute nothing to the process. Being born again from above means it all has to do with our Father in heaven. It is a gift, uh, in other words, it's all about the grace of God. You know, I have two kids, and uh, when they were born, neither of them seemed particularly happy about it. You know, they entered the world crying and screaming, and, which I kind of get because based on what I saw, it was quite a journey, okay? <laughs> Needless to say. Uh, but here's the deal. Uh, that journey, their birth, ultimately came about not because, of, not because of their suffering, their pain, their labor, but because of the suffering and pain of someone else. Mom, you see where this is going? Jesus says, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again from above. And he uses this brilliant metaphor to emphasize how spiritual rebirth comes about not through our labor, our pain, our suffering, but through the pain and suffering of someone else. And that someone else would be him. Deity in the flesh, the divine Messiah. In fact, Jesus goes on to explain this to Nicodemus and perhaps in terms he might better understand as a biblical scholar. First, Jesus says to him, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, which Son of Man was an Old Testament messianic title that Jesus applies to himself. And then he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, while Nicodemus would have been well acquainted with the event that Jesus references here, we may not be. So here's a quick summary. Back when Moses was leading the nation of Israel through the wilderness, and you can read about this in Numbers 21 in the Old Testament, when Moses was leading the nation through through the wilderness, God provided for and protected his people. But at one point, the Israelites, I don't know, they, they, got, they just became very obstinate and rude and, and amazingly ungrateful. 
And they rip into Moses, they criticize Moses, they question and criticize God, and in response, God removed his protection. And, and because of that, this weird thing happens, these, these venomous snakes slither into the camps, in and among the people, striking many, and a lot of people died. And when the Israelites realized how wrong it was to rail against God, who had been protecting them all along, they, they go to Moses and they say, you know what, we deserve this. That was messed up. We sinned. We spoke against the Lord, and we spoke against you. We're sorry. Would you ask the Lord to take the snakes away? They didn't feel like they could ask him themselves. So you ask the Lord to take the, snake, take, the snake, take the snakes away. So Moses says, sure, I'll do that. And he prayed for them. And what's interesting is that God answers the prayer, but not exactly in the way that people wanted. He didn't take the snakes away. Instead, he tells Moses, make a bronze snake, nail it to a pole, lift it up, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses did just that, and he told the people, this is what the Lord said, and, 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 and so when anyone was bitten by a viper, they looked at this bronze snake that was nailed to, up on a pole, and they lived. Why would God do all that? Why not just take away, take away the snakes? A couple reasons. First, God was looking for genuine faith. You know, he, he wanted his people to really trust him and understand, it wasn't like the snake had some kind of magic power. There was, it had no in, inherent power. But the act of looking at it was a way for sinful, sick, dying people to demonstrate they believed. Not, not just that they believed in God, but they believed God. They believed him. It was an act of obedience. It was an expression of, of faith that he would heal everyone and anyone who trusted him and did what he said. And that's what happened. But still, you know, the snake on a, on a pole thing seems a little odd to me, but apparently it was a foreshadowing of things to come. Fast forward to Jesus and Nicodemus. It's obvious that Nicodemus was confused by everything Jesus was telling him. Uh, I'm guessing he's just so immersed, you know, in his religious, works-oriented mentality and this idea that you've got to earn God's love and acceptance that he just wasn't getting it. It, it just wasn't clicking for him. And so realizing that, Jesus basically says, Nicodemus, I am the divine Messiah, the Son of Man, come from heaven. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who looks to him and believes, not behaves, everyone who looks and believes in him may have eternal life. Or put another way, uh, this, this new birth, this spiritual life, this cleansing, this this." This entering the kingdom is not about the goodness of humanity. It's all about the grace of God and the suffering of Jesus, the Son of Man, the Savior, who would be lifted up and crucified for the forgiveness of sins. In fact, John, the Apostle John, uh, he offers this pretty famous summary of what was said at this event and what it meant. In John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? Have you experienced this, this, this spiritual rebirth that Jesus spoke of? A rebirth that comes through faith in him? Or are you still banking on your own goodness to get you into the kingdom of God? 
stuck in this religious works-oriented mentality. What about Nicodemus? Uh, did he believe and experience the new birth Jesus was telling him about? Well, we're not told, at least not here, because this encounter um, comes to an end, a rather abrupt end. But this is what we do know. At one point, later in Jesus' ministry, when he was in Jerusalem te teaching in the temple courts, the Pharisees were feverishly irate about the claims he was making and all the things he was telling the people, like he, he was the divine savior, the Messiah who came, and he could forgive their sins, a thing only God could do. They were upset. He was saying things to people like, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. This drove the Pharisees crazy. And they got fed up with it, so they send out some temple guards to arrest Jesus. And when the guards come back without him, saying there's something special about this person, the Pharisees flipped out. They rebuked the, the guards. They criticized the ignorance of the common people who, who didn't know the law. At which point, Nicodemus, who was there among them, among his peers, speaks up in defense of Jesus. And he says, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? And this question, along with exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and violating their own law directly after criticizing the people of being ignorant of it, it also exposes Nicodemus to their criticism and their suspicion. They turn and look at him and they say, uh, are you from Galilee too? Translation, do you believe in this Jesus as well? Implying that he did. And then the last thing we know about Nicodemus is that immediately after the crucifixion, when a follower of Jesus, called a disciple of Jesus, um, he was a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea, he asks for and was granted permission to take the body for burial. And as he does that, the Apostle John writes in chapter 19, that this guy Joseph was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. The tomb was nearby, and they laid Jesus there. So you got these, picture this scene. You've got these two successful, wealthy Jewish men both religious and political leaders in Jerusalem, publicly requesting Jesus' body to prepare for burial themselves. And then Nicodemus, he brings 75 pounds of spices, super expensive. In fact, it, it, this was an amount normally used in royal burials for kings. And he brings it out of generosity. And the men, the men carry the body, they wipe it clean of blood and dirt, they apply all the sp spices and they wrap it up. You understand the significance of this? It's pretty huge. Because the only people in first century Palestine who ever washed and prepared corpses for burial were women and slaves. It was considered such, a, such an unclean, nasty, foul, undignified job that religious men of such wealth and prominence like Nicodemus would never do such a thing. And yet he does. In fact, while the other disciples, out of fear, go into hiding... Joseph and Nicodemus, by caring for the body, publicly, courageously identify themselves as followers of Jesus. Something happened to Nicodemus. 
Something happened that resulted in this fearless demonstration of love, radical generosity, and commitment. I mean, this wasn't just a nice thing to do. Nicodemus was putting everything at risk to do this. Everything he had, everything he had ever worked for, he was putting his life at risk to do this. Why? Because he believed. He believed Jesus was who he said he was. And he put his faith in Jesus and he experienced, he experienced the grace of God, i.e. he was born again from above, which always, always, always brings about life transformation. The grace of God changes things, it changes us. Now every now and then, and this may be true for you, um, every now and then I will hear people refer to themselves or to someone else as a born-again Christian. And full disclosure here, I never use that terminology, ever. Uh, For one, in our culture today, that label has been so trivialized, politicized, ridiculed, and misrepresented that it's just not helpful, and in some cases, harmful. But even even more so than that, I avoid using that label, born-again Christian, because it's a redundancy. It's a redundancy, implying that there are various kinds of Christians. But that's not true. Understand, there is no other kind of Christian. According to Jesus, it is this spiritual rebirth that comes by the grace of God through faith in him as Savior that makes you a Christian and gives you not not only a new life, but eternal life. Question is, have you have you experienced it? Some of us will be here, and some of us will say, "Yes, I have. I know I have." Uh, some of us will say, "No, no, I haven't." And some of us may say, "I'm not sure. I'm not sure. How, I mean, how do you know? How do I know if I've been truly born again from above?" Well, first of all, the question is, have you have you personally expressed faith? in Jesus? And secondly, has that faith changed your life? Is it changing your life? Because to be spiritually born again doesn't just make you an improved and better religious person, it makes you a brand new person. As with Nicodemus, you go from being a mere admirer of Jesus to a fully committed, radically generous, unquestionably courageous follower. Does that describe you? And if not, Why not? Why not? Perhaps like Nicodemus, you come before God today with the need to be born again from above. If so, then receive the grace of God. Receive the grace of God. Look to Jesus, who was lifted up for the forgiveness of our sins, and believe. Believe. And experience new birth. Very, um, uh, just a few hours before Jesus was crucified, he, you know, he spent some time in Jerusalem in a, in a room with his closest friends, and as many of you know, they celebrated a Passover meal called the Seder. And uh, during this meal, um, everything that's involved in the meal is, is symbolic. Everything on the table is symbolic. And during this meal, Jesus took matzah, and he broke it. And he said, this is, this is my body broken for you. And then uh, Jesus took a cup of wine. And during the Seder meal, there were four cups of wine. And they have, they have names. The one that Jesus took was called the, uh, um, 
cup of redemption. He took the cup of redemption and he said, this, this represents my, my blood poured out for you. In a very graphic way, through matzah and, and, and wine, Jesus was, Jesus was telling his closest friends what, what was about to happen. As Savior, as the Messiah, he would be lifted up, nailed to the tree, so that whoever looks to him and not behaves, but whoever looks to him and believes will have eternal life. Many of you have done that. Many of you know you've done it, and uh, you, you've committed yourself to Jesus. You believe he died for you, rose again for you, and gives you life. And so what we're going to do in the next few minutes, I just want you to, to take, take your time and just quietly process this to make sure you, you have made that decision, that you do believe it. And then whenever you're ready, you can go to one of the corners where we have uh, communion, and you can serve yourself communion. You can just take some of the matzah, dip it into the, into the cup, and receive it. And allow that to remind you of what Jesus has done for you. And, um, and allow it to be a celebration in your life, giving thanks for, for the life that, that God has given you, life eternal. But if you've never made that decision, you've never, you've never said, yes, I believe, um, this is a, ch a chance for you to do that. Uh, so if you want to do that for the first time, uh, I'm just going to be in the front here, and I would love to serve you communion. You don't have to say anything. Just come to me. I'll serve you communion. And allow that to be sort of this, this, this marker, this birthmark, if you will, of the day and the time you said, I, I believe, I believe in Jesus. So let me pray for us. And then when you're ready, you can go to wherever you want. And if you can't get up to receive communion, you can't get that, just raise your hand and we'll make sure you're served. Maybe someone around you will help. Okay? Let me pray for us. Our Father, there's, so, there's, a, there's this deep part of us as human beings that um, so desperately want to prove how good we are. And this, this, this mentality that we can earn our way. We can earn your love. We can earn our way into the kingdom. And for many of us, we find ourselves just um, trying and trying and trying, always falling short and just being crushed by the weight of it all. Help us to understand more fully, and perhaps even for the first time, that the new birth you promise is about receiving your grace and believing in Jesus. Not behaving, but believing. And may we put our faith in you and our belief in you. May this be a time of reflection, may it be a time of uh, recommitment, and perhaps for some, even the first time of saying, yes, I believe. We invite your spirit to do his work in and among you people now as we worship you, our God, and give you thanks. In Jesus' name. I want to thank you all for uh, being with us this morning. And um, you know what I love about doing communion the way we, we did it? Because it can be a little chaotic, you know? You kind of lose your seat, you got to find your seat, but you, you make your way up or to the corner. Isn't that the way with life? Isn't life chaotic? Aren't we confused sometimes? Which way we're going, up, down, and all around? And yet in the midst of the chaos comes Jesus. Find us, love us, and... Uh, 
rescue us. It's a beautiful picture. Thanks for coming. And, um, you know, maybe you're here and you're still asking some questions about this whole Jesus thing. Talk to someone you know from Parkview or following the service. Some of our, our folks will be up front. You can come and talk with them as well. You know, uh, the story today was about a very, very good religious man who Jesus encounters. And he has something to say to him. Next week, he's going to encounter somebody completely different, somebody not so good, not so moral, very different. And yet Jesus extends love and grace as well, just in a very different way. So come back. We'll take a look at that story. I think you'll find it helpful. Also, just a reminder, uh, we're uh, offering these books by N.T. Wright, 26 Studies in John. I'll give you an opportunity to do some extra study outside Sunday morning, which I think is a good thing for all of us. You can pick these up. Um, I, I know we have extra copies. We keep, we keep selling out, but we got enough to go around, okay? So you can stop by and get one. Also, you can stop by the... Um, uh, the life group desk there and find out how you can uh, get connected in a life group or, or uh, supports on, on, on uh, Monday nights as well. Okay? Thanks for coming. I hope you have a great rest of the weekend. Let me pray for us and then we're dismissed. And now, Lord, we as your church enter back into what is sometimes very chaotic life. We're running and going and sometimes know what we're doing, other times not, confused. All of this happening and in the midst of it all comes Jesus to love us, to extend grace to us, to rescue us and give us life. And uh, I pray now that we would go with a great sense of joy and may we live our lives in such a way that we point people to him. May your hand of grace and peace now rest on your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.